1 Samuel, and we're going to continue going through 1 Samuel um, tonight, uh, rest of uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you remember last time we left off, uh, Hannah had given her three-year-old son to be raised by Eli. And Eli's going to take care of him. Uh, we know from Scripture, and Scripture we're going to talk about tonight, that Eli is going to struggle with his other children. But Hannah trusted the Lord and she gave her son to him. She gave her son to God. And we're going to see God work in his life in, in an amazing way. As we take a look, beginning at, uh, at verse 12 in chapter 2, remember where we are. We're in the time of the judges. And in the time of the judges, we have uh, this thing that marked that time. And that is, everyone did what was right in his own heart. There was no king in Israel in those days. And nobody was really following the Lord. We look at the time of the judges, even the priests, the Levites, as they're doing their thing, as they're, as they're trying to, to be priests in their own heart, uh, not according to God's word. Nobody's looking at the word. Nobody's paying attention to the word or what the word says. And the center for worship we have down in a place called Shiloh. In Shiloh, they have the tabernacle set up. And the tabernacle set up there in Shiloh has been built into a permanent structure. So at one time it was that tent, and now that's been built. It's a, it's a permanent structure, a permanent place where, where they come to worship. And you have there as high priest a guy named Eli. And Eli has two sons. His two sons are knuckleheads, and we'll get to know them a little bit better today. And, uh, but they're serving also as priests. And they are in line to be the next high priest. Now, until this time, God spoke to the nation through the high priest. The high priest would receive from the Lord. He was the one who went into the Holy of Holies once a year. He brought in the sacrifice. He, he would pronounce forgiveness for the nation for the next year. And whatever God had to say or however God wanted to deliver the directions to his people, it would come through them. But that's all going to change with Samuel. It's all going to change when Samuel comes on a scene. Because in the time of the judges, there was no king in Israel. And even the priests were not following God like they were supposed to. Even the priests were just doing their own thing, as we're going to see. Even the priests, they were just looking about getting their own. That's what marked the time of the judges. And so God's going to change it all. He's kind of good at doing that. He's kind of good at reaching down into our lives and knowing exactly where it needs to be tweaked, what needs to be twisted, what needs to get put on its ear to bring us to a place where we can hear his voice again. And that's the struggle that we see. It says in verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt, and they did not know the Lord. Keep in mind, those are the priests in line for the high priest. It's never a good thing when the priest or pastor is not a believer. Um, you would think that that's a foregone conclusion, that every priest or pastor has to be a believer. But that's not true. That's not true. Some guys go into it, they look at it as a vocation, they go to school, seminary, come out, get a church. Never once had a relationship with the Lord. And that's what you got going on with the two sons of Eli. And they, he says here, they were corrupt. The word for corrupt literally in the Hebrew is they are sons of Belial. Which literal translation would be there, sons of the devil. So let, let there be no confusion. These guys are not saved. They have no relationship, nor do they really care about having a relationship with God. What they're interested in is what they can get for themselves. Look what it says in verse 13. In the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, while you're reading that, keep in mind that God gave very specific instructions on the portions that were to go to the priests. The priest got the shoulder... Period. Didn't need a flesh hook. They didn't need to do the things that they're doing. God had prescribed exactly what portions of what sacrifices belonged to them. But you remember what marked the time of the judges. 
In those days, nobody really cared about God being in control of anything. And everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. So the priest got this idea, well, here's how we'll figure out what's our portion of the, of the sacrifice. We'll just jam a, a treble hook, a big old treble hook, down into the, this pot. And whatever comes out on the treble hook, that's ours. Well, never mind. If it's a fatty part, or if it's a part that the Scripture declared goes to the Lord, it doesn't matter because really God would be able to keep it on or off the hook. So whatever we put in and come out of that hook, that's going to be ours. But that's not what God's Word taught. But they were not following God's Word. They didn't care about obeying what He had laid out for them. And so they did whatever was right. And the, the deal is... Rather, they were not satisfied with their portion. They also wanted part of what the offerers were given. Because remember, every sacrifice, I want you to picture, every sacrifice, save for one, every sacrifice would come and would be divided. Just like if you were to take a, a steer down into to, to B&L and say, hey, uh, you know, these are the cuts of meat I want. Maybe you're into it, with, you have to picture you're into it with three families. And the sacrifice, one family is God. So God's going to take these parts, the fat. That's what the Lord wanted, the fat. And then he said, then the, the, the shank and the shoulder, that's going to go to the priest, and everything else will go to the one who's bringing it. But now they're not satisfied. They're not satisfied with the portion that God said was theirs. Listen, it's very important to understand, for the tribe of Levi had no inheritance. They didn't get land. They, didn't, they weren't supposed to go out and, and work and, and have all these uh, uh, flocks and herds and all that stuff. They were to be focused with one purpose, to teach God's word to the people. And the Lord said, I am your inheritance. Their inheritance was that close, personal relationship with God. But you see, these two men, these two sons, they despise that. What's good is that relationship? It doesn't fill my belly. So they developed this way of ripping the people off. Now, before we get too hard on them, they were doing it still at the time of Jesus. No, not the flesh hook. But they were still ripping people off, right? Remember, they would come in and they would say, Hey, your, your offering has to be without spot, without blemish, right? God wants our best. Now, that just means it's supposed to be your best from your, your herd. Your best. But that you would have to bring your best, and the priest would examine the best for four days, and amazingly, he always found something wrong with it. But he said, you know what, never fear, because we have right back here in our own personal temple stables, pre-qualified sacrifices. And you can buy a pre-qualified sacrifice. Just trade yours in. I'm sure they took theirs... And then, you know, put a stamp on it that said it was approved and put it in the herd to sell it to somebody else. And then when they said, okay, well, okay, I'll buy one. And, and as they came to buy one, they said, well, I'm sorry, because it's a temple, you can't use Caesar's money. You have to exchange your money for temple money. And when you've exchanged it for temple money, then you can buy. And there, of course, every time you exchange money, what do they do? They charge you something for it, right? Every time. So they charged something for the money. They took a portion of it. People have been ripping off the worshipers of God since the beginning of time. And God doesn't like it. You're going to see just how much He doesn't like it today. He does not like you ripping off His people who are coming to Him honestly. What did he, when, he when, when the Lord set up the sacrificial system, he set up the sacrificial system so that you consciously would bring your best to the Lord. Not so that you would go buy something and give it to him. But that this was something from your herd. This was, this was an animal you helped calf, you helped give birth to, you helped take care of, and then you brought to the Lord. And you had something invested, not just something you bought. But you see, what we see from the sons of Eli here and what we see even at the time of Christ is people began to cause the worshipers of God to say, forget this, I ain't coming. This is just a, a bunch of baloney. And that's what these guys were doing. So they despised first the portion that God gave them. 
And then it says in verse 15, also, before they burned the fat. Now you remember I told you, who did the fat belong to? That's God's portion. Before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest. He will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And the man, if the man said to him, well, really, they should burn the fat first, because that was what was going to God. He got his first. But these guys would say, then you can take as much as you desire. And the servant of the priest would answer and say, no, you will give it now. And if you don't, I'll take it by force. This is a kind of, this is a kind of priest that were functioning within the tabernacle at the time of Samuel. These are the two other sons of Eli and the way they conducted business. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For listen to this part. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Because of the way they treated people, people hated to worship. They hated to come. And that's a big problem. That's a big problem in terms of the Lord. The scripture lays out for us when... Jesus came into the temple as he came into that place that something roused his righteous indignation, his anger, and he began to overturn the tables of the money changers. And he said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, marketing, making money off the people. And really, it's one of the issues that Jesus did in his earthly ministry that brought the ire, the anger of the high priest, Caiaphas, and his family. Who, by the way, were no longer selected by God, but appointed by the Roman government. So, things had changed. And we see the beginning right here, the time of Judges. 400 years. That's the the time of the Judges lasts, roughly 400 years. And we are currently, right now, taking a look at the last judge and the first of the prophets. Same person. He's a three-year-old boy. Being raised by a man with sons that are ripping off the people and causing the people to curse God. Causing the people to say, I don't want to worship, I don't want to go. It's a big rip-off. It's a big rip-off. It's a big scam that they're running. And so the Lord is upset at the sin of these young men. And then he contrasts that behavior in verse 18 with Samuel. Listen, but Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. And before we get too hard on Eli, which is really easy to do, it's really easy to be hard on the parents of a kid. You know, because obviously it can't possibly be the kid's fault that he's like that. It's got to be parents. Parents had to mess him up somehow. What we see in the life of Samuel is a little different. Samuel basically is going to be fathered by the same father that fathered the other two. From the age of three to the age of twelve, he's going to be raised by Eli. Every aspect of his life. Yet his heart, his desire, is to serve the Lord. The other two sons couldn't care less. It didn't matter to them. When we read the scripture, the scripture says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And people struggle with that concept. You know, well, Esau never had a chance. Listen, Esau had a chance. God just knew Esau's heart before Esau knew it. The scripture tells us that Esau despised the things of the spirit. He hated the concepts of God and spirituality and worship. He hated it. All he cared about was what he could feed his flesh with. That was his heart. That's why God said, Esau have I hated. Literally, it's a Hebrew idiom for choice. God saying, I chose Jacob because Esau is a man of the flesh. And he doesn't care. And he doesn't want a relationship. So I choose Jacob. I choose him. And you see the same thing here. Samuel, three years old, wants to serve the Lord. Now, if I learned anything from three-year-olds, I learned that three-year-olds do what their dad does. So whatever Samuel is learning, he's learning from Eli. Eli's not rotten. He just had a hard time 
confronting and dealing with the sins of his sons. And that's God's gonna God, God's got something to say about that. But in the in this time, as he's raising, as God's working in Samuel's life, so is Eli. Eli is providing that that positive example for him. And we see, even as a child, he's wearing a linen ephod. That linen ephod is the uniform of a priest. He's wearing the uniform of a priest. Little guy, he's making sure the, the candles are lit. He's making sure the doors are open for worship. He's making sure these things are ready, and he does his job. And then it says in verse 19, not only that, moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Though Hannah had given Samuel to the Lord, she never quit loving him. She never quit stopping and seeing him. She never quit, you know, bringing little gifts or, or giving this robe once a year to him, spending time with him because she loved him. She cared about him. And Eli, it says in verse 20, would bless Elkanah and his wife, that's Hannah, and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. Again, we talked last time about that word loan here in our Bibles. It really means that to, to give or fulfill a vow. Remember, she made a vow, a promise to God. If you give me a son, I'm going to give him to you. And she gave him to the Lord, not for five years or ten years, but eternally. He's yours. <clears throat> He's all yours for the gift. So verse 21 says that the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. I love that phrase. So God blessed Hannah. Hannah had more children. She, she ends up with five. The Lord opened her womb and blessed her and, and her desire to have a child in all those years of barrenness forgotten. And all the while, the scripture tells us there's Samuel in that place with those two crooked priests doing all the stuff they're doing. And there's this little three-year-old. Then he's a four, then he's five, then he's six. And as he's growing, he continues to honor and serve the Lord. He doesn't learn from their example. Because his heart is tuned to God. He desires to understand. He desires to know. So he grew, not only before men, but before the Lord. Verse 22, it says, Now Eli was very old. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit. Perhaps as many as eight years have passed. And Eli was very old. And he heard everything his sons did to all of Israel. And how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So not only are they ripping people off, they're involved in sexual immorality inside the temple. That was common in the pagan world. That was a common practice among the pagans. But, but not here, not this. These are, these are women who are coming to worship and who are taken advantage of by Eli's sons. Sexual immorality there within the temple, ripping off the people. And he knew about it. He knew about it. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Sam, or, or Eli is trying to speak to his sons, but he doesn't do the hard thing that the Bible would tell him to do for what they're doing. Deuteronomy told us what, what should happen. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 12, it laid out that a, that a priest that behaved in a manner like this would be put to death so that the sin did not infiltrate the entire camp. Deuteronomy chapter 21 said that if your children, and speaking of children meant at whatever age, they reached the point where they were not able to be instructed by you and they were not keeping uh, God's word, then they're to be put out. They're to be taken out. They're, they're to be removed from the camp. God's word was telling Eli what to do, but Eli didn't want to do it. Oh, I don't blame him. I probably wouldn't want to do it either. 
But in that choice, that one little choice of Eli's, how many other people fell? How many women's lives were changed? How many husbands? How many kids? How many people in the years that they ministered as priests? How many people despised and blasphemed the name of God because of their example? The problem with the human condition is a simple problem. I have it, you have it, we all have it. It's called selfishness. We have a hard time seeing how our choices affect the people around us. We care about, well, what did it say in Judges? Everyone did what was right. How? In his own eyes. And not according to what God's word laid out. So Eli confronts his sons, but... At the very least, he could have said, hey, you guys can't be priests no more. Get out of here. They're in line to be the high priest. The voice for God for the nation. You think that's a problem with guys who don't even know the Lord? I'm not sure that that's a good position. I'm not sure that's a place they ought to be. But Eli is not dealing with it. He's talking to them and he's letting them know, listen, if you have a difference between men, then that can be settled with a judge. But if a man sins against God, who is going to be your advocate? If what you do is against God, who will be your advocate? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 tells us, now it's Jesus Christ. He's our advocate. He's the one that bridges the gap because of our sin to the Father. But it says, and the scripture goes on in verse 25, Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. And we look at that, we tend to read it this way. We tend to read it, well, God wouldn't allow them to repent, because he wanted to kill them. So they didn't have a chance to repent, and that's why they didn't change their ways. Nope, you're not reading it right. You're not understanding what is being laid out for us, especially in the original language. They chose not to repent, and God said, then that's it. Today was the last day. This was the day of repentance. This was the day of salvation, and this was the last time you'll say no. His sons are going to be judged by God as a result of their choice. It says in verse 26, And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with men. So you see, over and over again, Samuel being contrasted with these other two guys. Samuel growing with the Lord, little kid, walking with the Lord, doing the things that God wants him to do. These other two guys don't care about spiritual issues, have rejected the Lord, rejected the opportunity for repentance or or returning in a right relationship with God, don't care about any of that stuff. In contrast, you have Samuel, that that's what he's about. And the people that came to worship were noticing him. Check out that kid. Now, don't look at these other two knuckleheads, but this kid, look at, look at how he serves the Lord. Look at how he worships. Look at how he does the things that God's called him to do. In verse 27, it says, Then a man of God came to Eli. A man of God. And we don't know who this is. Somebody that God sent, a man of God, came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt? In Pharaoh's house, the house of his father, he's speaking back to the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron, the first high priest. And all the sons of Aaron were to set as, they were the only ones who could set as as a high priest. And so Eli is from one of the three sons of Aaron. He says, did I not clearly make myself clear about the statutes, the way that a priest is supposed to behave in my house? He says in verse 28, did I not choose him? Out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest. The first thing that you have to recognize about the priest is they were there to serve God first and then the people. That they were there to serve God, there to be my priest, my priest, 
to offer upon my altar. Don't lose sight, that altar. But the altar belongs to God, and it is an altar for two things, atonement and praise. Every sacrifice ever brought there was for one of those two things, atonement or praise. Bringing that atonement, making yourself right with the Lord. So they were to be His priests, serving God before they served the people, to offer upon His altar both atonement and praise. But instead, the people are despising the offering of God, despising the worship, despising coming to that place. He goes on to say, to burn incense. The burning of incense spoke of the intercessory prayer ministry of the priest. Every day he was, as he stood before that golden altar, to pray for the needs of the nation. Every day. There was a tribe in Israel, the tribe of Levi, that every day was at prayer for the nation. Well, except for these two guys, at least, and several others during the time of the judges, but these two guys who were only concerned with whether or not they could get meat. You remember before they said, listen, we want to, we want, give us raw meat. You guys remember that? Give us raw meat. We don't want the boiled meat. You know why they wanted the raw meat? So they could sell it. Well, the boiled meat they had to keep and eat. But the raw meat, they could throw that on a slab and sell it. So they're taking God's portion that belonged to him and selling it to make money. The attitude that these guys had. The Lord says, listen, you're to be prayer warriors for my people. You're to be offering atonement and praise at my altar. You're to be serving me first. Focused on that concept. And not only that, he says, and to wear an ephod before me. The ephod, that clothing that the priest wore, spoke of several things. It spoke of, in essence, the majesty, the glory, and the beauty of God. That they were clothed in that. That they were that example. What kind of an example were they being? Of majesty, of glory, of dignity, of the beauty of God? Man, they're ripping people off. God never looks or overlooks when someone rep- represents him poorly. You know how we know that? Because there's this fellow named Moses who was called the friend of God. So if anybody was close to the Lord, here's Moses. He's pretty close to the Lord. The only one who would ever, that God spoke to face to face, Moses. Who represented God wrong and never entered into the promised land as a result. That's how God, God takes it seriously how we represent him to the world. And these priests, didn't Paul say, let not many of you desire to be teachers for you come under stricter condemnation? What's the point? As we climb the the ladder, if you will, of service to God... There is also, we're also climbing a ladder of responsibility that says, I am now taking an an extra measure of responsibility about how I represent the Lord, about how I walk with Him. Now, God's desire is that we're constantly moving up that ladder toward Him. But the only people who control how fast or slow we we do that is us, right? But as we draw, the, the Apostle Paul wants you to know, hey, Each step brings you into a a stricter condemnation, a a place where more is going to be expected of you. Well, these were priests. They don't get higher than them. They don't get higher. But they weren't rightly reflecting the Lord. He said, And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? The Lord says in this, he's saying, Listen, didn't I give you everything you need. Everything that was necessary for their life, for life to be sustained, for them not just to live, but to be able to enjoy life and have all the food they needed and had all the the clothing that they needed was all provided within the offering that the people brought. It It was all worked into it. But they despised the inheritance that God had given them. 
The Lord saying, have I not done this? Have I not given you this? So then listen, don't lose sight of this because he's talking to Eli. Why do you kick at my sacrifice? The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. I never forget Hebrews chapter 6. That those who count the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a common thing. The word used is trampling the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't ever want to be in the category of a person who tramples through the blood of Jesus Christ like it's nothing. Like it's a common thing. Like it's just a stain on the ground. Who cares? When he's talking to Eli, this is God talking to Eli and saying, why are you kicking my sacrifice? What What did the sacrifice picture? The sacrifice was his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's what the altar spoke of. It's like, why are you kicking the sacrifice? Why are you trampling my son's blood? Why are you treating these holy things as though they don't matter? Why are you giving this poor light or poor representation of the nature of God and your daily work and the daily things that you do? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and offering, which I commanded in my dwelling place? Do you hear that? Which I commanded where? In my dwelling place. Where did God reside? He resided, he lived in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. When Moses erected the tabernacle, do you remember what happened? The Shekinah, the Kabod. The Kabod is a Hebrew word for the weight. The weight and the Shekinah, the glory. The glory and the weight moved into the tabernacle and there was the physical presence of God there was this light and there was this this smoke and there was lightning and there was all this stuff when the people around Moses came to the tabernacle they saw a physical manifestation of the presence of God in the tabernacle I'm not sure that's gone yet While they're ripping off meat. While they're neglecting the things of the Lord. It's going to be gone. I'm not sure it's gone yet. Maybe maybe it is. Maybe, there's, maybe the light had faded and it's not there. But here God hasn't been speaking to them for almost 400 years during the time of the judges. Who did God talk to? God didn't have prophets. What did he have? He had judges during the time of judges, Right? And he would speak to them and give them a mission, but that certainly wasn't a a spiritual instruction for the people. Where was the spiritual instruction for the people to come from? The priests. And why weren't the priests doing it? Because they're corrupt. They don't even believe. They don't even have a relationship with God. How did they get this far down off track? Same way we do. One step at a time. Pretty soon we turn around and we look at the path we've been walking and we realize, man, I'm a long ways off of where I wanted to be right now. I'm a long ways away from what I wanted to be or how I want to be with the Lord. I was challenged last night. Tuesday nights we do a a men's discipleship group and and, uh, we got some guys that come and and we... uh, we listened to uh, uh, one of the uh, pastors that shared at the pastor's conference in, uh, in Marietta this last year. But he had a challenging thing to say. He was talking about the rapture and living our life, uh, you know, under the concept of the imminent return of Christ. Every day, this could be the day Jesus returns, you know, so we need to be who we're supposed to be now, not tomorrow, now. And he said, listen, if I told you, that Jesus Christ was coming back in 20 minutes, what would you do? If you are thinking anything, then you're not living in the imminent return of Christ. If the thought in your mind is, I'd call, then you're not living in the imminent return. If you were, that call had been made. That thing would be said. It would be done. Ignatius. They, they were talking to Ignatius. One of the stories that he tells. He's talking to Ignatius, who's an early church father back in the 
third century of the church. And, and Ignatius, they asked Ignatius the question, Ignatius, what would you do? You know, and they're all talking about the things that he, they would do. And Ignatius said, well, I'd stay here and play handball. What? How can you say that? What do you mean you'll stay here and play handball? He said, I'm ready. I'm ready. We look at how far off track they got. The challenge to us is, if we don't want to be off track, then we've got to live every day being ready. Because if we do, we're going to be on track, aren't we? We're going to be doing the things God wants us to do. Be living the life God wants us to live. We'll be saying the things. And maybe our heart will be broken because people will be shooting us down every time we we try to tell them about the Lord. But as long as God gives me another day, I'm going to try again. You're either going to stop answering my phone calls, and then I'll write a letter. You throw away the letter, that's on you, brother. I did my part. Right? Living that day, living our life out before him. But that's not what they were doing. And so God's bringing his judgment. And his judgment, you hear, he's talking to Eli. Eli, you are kicking my sacrifice because you have allowed this behavior in your sons to continue. You haven't dealt with it. You haven't dealt with it. So this is what the Lord has to say to him. Listen to this phrase. Um. Why do you kick my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me? Now, I don't know about you, but that jumps off a page of me. Because there is a time, seriously, there is a time in sharing about Jesus and, and t- telling people that, that I was a believer instead of a top secret believer that nobody could know about because I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. If I tell them I'm a believer, then they'll... Then they'll start feeling uncomfortable and, and, you know, I don't want them to feel uncomfortable, so I won't tell them. What? That's the dumbest thing ever. So stupid. I thought I was being so caring for them. What God would really say is, you love them more than you love me. When the Lord spoke that to me, man, it was like life-altering. Just so I can make this straight, Lord, I don't love them more than you. And if they get offended, they get offended. If they get offended, they'll be offended at the word. They won't be offended at me. I'm not going to be a jerk or a punk or a weirdo. I'm, but I'm going to tell the truth. You know, anytime somebody feels like they have the right to tell me whatever they think about me, I figure I have the right to tell them whatever I think. Isn't that fair? It should be. It doesn't always work out that way. I can't believe you said that to me. Well, I think just yesterday you told me I was fat. I figured if you told me I was fat, I had the right to decide whether or not I liked the way you look, too. That's just, all's fair, right? The idea is that, that we want to be having that attitude that says, Hey, I want to uphold the name of Jesus Christ, the name of the Lord, above anything else. Even my own son. Jesus said, unless you love me more than mother, daughter, son... Father, you are not worthy of me. That's straight. He said it. I didn't. And that's what he means. Right? Just like what Eli is. Just like what's going through with Eli right now. Honor your sons more than me. To make yourself fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed... That your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now, the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God says, I will honor those who honor me. You guys remember that movie, Chariots of Fire? What was that fellow's name that ran? Somebody's got to know his name, right? Nobody knows his name. Eric Little? Eric Little. Eric Little, who was famous for the 100-yard dash. His speed in the 100 was where, that was his specialty. But when he discovered the Olympic Games, the 100-yard dash was going to be run on a Sunday, he said, I'm not running. I won't run. And he didn't. In his best event, he didn't run. 
The next day they're running the 400. And in the 400, as he's preparing in the block, somebody walks up to him and hands him a piece of paper. He doesn't even really look at it until after he's run the race. It said this verse, I will honor those who honor me. And he set a record in the 400. The concept is, are we living our life honoring God? Or are we more worried about honoring our children? Or honoring our boss? Or honoring our spouse? Or honoring all those things? Now I'm not saying that those things aren't supposed to happen. But they're not supposed to happen first. God first. He has to have that place of honor. He has to have that place within our lives. And, and that, you know, it's one of the things we see in Eric Little's life. Well, Scripture goes on to tell us, So, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor those who despise me, will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm. Now that's a, an idiom for removing the strength. Their position of strength was that within the priesthood. And the arm of your father's house. Now he's talking about the, one of the three sons of, of Aaron. It's going to pass from that son now. This is a judgment spoken of in Levi. We're not going to see the fulfillment until around 2 Kings. But God's saying, I'm going to remove this family from the high priestly line. And that, that priestly line is going to move to Zadok. It's going to move to Zadok. And so that's what's going to occur uh, at the time of Solomon. It's going to be fulfilled. But right now, he says, And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Man. God says, you're, you're the priestly line, you're going to lose that. It's no longer going to be a part of your family. I'm going to take it to another family. And then, not only that, he says, nobody's going to live long. Life's going to be a struggle for the family. There's going to be struggles always. Any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. He says, anybody who I have not removed from being a priest... Their life is just going to be hard to watch. Be a pain to watch. Break your heart. God's judgment coming down. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. And this will be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, in one day, they shall die, both of them. Here's what the, this prophet, this man of God is saying to them. He's saying, listen, God's going to remove the priesthood from you. There's going to be this, this uh, era, era of, uh, of short uh, life, short lifespan among your family. Not only that, just so you know, because many of these things are going to take place future, especially the, the priesthood being moved, takes place at Solomon, and there's not even a king yet. So he says, so you know that God's going to be faithful to what he's telling you in this judgment? This will be the sign. Both of your sons will die in one day. On the same day, your sons, they're going to be dead. This will be the sign. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. In the short term, he's talking about Samuel. In the long term, he's talking about the Christ. Jesus, who is our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That he is our high priest. And he will always be in that role of high priest for us. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a morsel of bread and say, please 
Put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. This judgment of God is because they abused the offerings that were coming in. They made the people despise the offerings that they brought. So God said, the day will come when they're going to come before Samuel and say, please let us be a priest again just so we can have a piece of bread. The judgment. By the way, God's judgments are always just, righteous, and true. Which is why. I never want the judgment of God in my life. You see, the judgment of God befell his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus bore the judgment of God for me. So that I could stand before God in the righteousness of his son. He is the perfect high priest. The one who put an end to all sacrifice. He has, has done it all, accomplished it all for us. In chapter 3, the scripture goes on. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. We know in chapter 3 that Samuel's 12 years old. He's about 12 years old. I think back when, the, when this man came and spoke to Eli, I think we're dealing with the same time frame here. So I think that, uh, that we're still in that same time. Eight years had passed. Samuel's become... Uh, a young man, not quite a teenager yet, still walking in the ways of the Lord, still honoring the Lord. The boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Now you and I, we have a hard time with that because we have the word of God everywhere. You can go anywhere and get the word of God. I can go to Walmart, Barnes & Noble, Fedco. They got Fedco out here? Probably. No Fedco? Is Fedco gone? I don't know. Anyway, I'm showing my age, I guess. Wherever you go, there's lots of ways, lots of places where we can receive that revelation of God. But in the time of the judges, God wasn't speaking. His priesthood was corrupt. Who's he going to talk through? Samson? Yeah, that's a great choice, right? Because Samson just walked with the Lord his whole life. Uh, No. What about Gideon? No, he kind of stumbled and... And fail too. There's a struggle of finding something, someone who wasn't corrupt. But you see, God's raising up someone who's not. God's raising up a mouthpiece, one for whom or through whom He can speak. We see in chapter three of Samuel God's reward for faithfulness. We see God's reward for sinfulness in chapter two. That judgment. Now we're going to see God's reward for faithfulness in the life. Of one who was willing to fulfill. Now think about it. The word of the Lord didn't come very often. But when it did. What did it come? What did it sound like? Like what we just read. I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to wipe out your whole family. I'm going to take you out of the priesthood. Judgment. Judgment. And it came to pass at that time. While Eli was laying down in his place. And when his eyes had begun to grow so dim. That he could not see. So Eli is becoming blind. And before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was. And while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel and he answered, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and he said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. And he went back and lay down. So here's what we have happening first. God's reward for faithfulness. We see this key for for this life of faithfulness is to have ears to hear. How many times did Jesus say that? Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Attentive ears. Samuel cared about what God was about. And so as a result, the Lord comes to him and calls him. Samuel. And he calls him so plainly that Samuel thinks it's Eli in the other room. So Samuel jumps up and runs. He runs into Eli. He has a tent of ears. And, that, and this, is, this is key because the attentive ears are seen by the immediate response. When God called, he got up. When the Lord spoke to him, he was moving. Now he didn't know where to go yet. That's coming. But right now you see it. When he heard, it says he ran to Eli. Immediate response. He jumped up right now. He jumped up and he went. 
Then the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he answered, I did not call my son. Lie down again. I can imagine how this conversation's going. Most of us at one time or another have had, you know, a little one who's just kind of learning to go to bed on their own. Maybe not sleeping in mom and dad's room anymore. And then they, how many times they come running in, oh, or they start hollering from the room, dad, dad. You know, there's something in my closet or some, there's a monster under my bed or whatever the case might be. I kind of miss those days. They don't call anymore. Yeah, they say, dad, get out of my room instead of... Dad, dad, like when they were little, you know. So here he is, he runs in. Now it says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. So you understand, up until the time he's 12, he doesn't have a personal relationship with God. He hasn't heard from the Lord. He doesn't even know about the word of God yet. Because they're not teaching that like they're supposed to. So... God intervenes in his life. Does it remind you of anybody else? There's this guy that was running around persecuting the church. His name was Saul. Saul. He's going around whooping people. One day on his way to Damascus, what happened? He ran right into Jesus Christ and it all changed. Bright light shone upon him. He hits the ground. He's on his knees. He goes blind. And he says, Lord... Which I always thought was interesting. Who art thou? Lord, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then he said, you tell me what to do. Whatever you tell me, I'll go do it. You're going to see that all, a very, very, very similar response in a 12-year-old boy. Who God is stepping out of time and reaching out. And touching his life so that he can have a, a mouthpiece, a voice to the nation of Israel. Here's Samuel sleeping in his bed. He doesn't know the Lord. He doesn't have a relationship with him. He hasn't ever heard from him yet. In verse 8 it says, And the Lord called Samuel a third time. So he arose and went to Eli. Now I'm sure by this point Eli is awake. Right? Three times children running into your room. Going to wake you up. So the third time he comes in. Here I am, you did call me. I know I hear you. Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that it was the Lord that called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The second thing we're going to see in a faithful life that God wants to move in, not just a tent of ears or ears to hear, but obedience. Obedience. He has an obedient will. Eli tells him what to do. What's he do? He does what Eli said. He does what he said. He went in, he lied down. Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. Calls him twice. You know, Scripture said Samuel didn't know the Lord. But you know what I know from this Scripture? The Lord knew Samuel. He knew his name. God, When God knows your name, that's a good thing, right? Otherwise, you're just a no-name man in a parable somewhere. He knows him. He knows him, Samuel, Samuel. And you notice it said he stood there. He stood there. How's God stand there? God's spirit. Well, that's true. God is spirit. But there's a part of God that manifests in the flesh. We call the part of God that manifests in the flesh Jesus. Before Bethlehem, in theological terms, is called a Christophany or a theophany, the appearance of God. The Bible has said no man has seen God at any time. No man can see God and live. You cannot look upon the Father. The Father is spirit. You must be righteous, pure, and holy to look upon the Father. But Jesus, he reveals the Father to us. Isn't that what John said? He reveals the Father to us. So here Jesus, there, he's by this 12-year-old boy, he stands, it says. He stood there and he said, Samuel. And Samuel answered and said, Speak, for your servant hears. 
And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now, before you think that's good, in Hebrew idioms, that's bad. That means there's going to be an especially severe judgment. An especially severe judgment is coming. In that day, I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. So the Lord is confirming the voice of the man of God earlier in chapter 2, right? That judgment. Now he's telling Samuel the very same thing. He's given Samuel the same words. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile, but he did not restrain them. You understand God's not blaming Eli for the choices of his sons. God's judgment on Eli is because he did not restrain them. God's judgment on his sons is that they made themselves vile. They made themselves vile. That's not Eli's problem. Eli's problem is he didn't do nothing about it. As the high priest and the leader, the boss, he should have done something about it. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. What is he saying? He's saying the opportunity for repentance is past. The opportunity for repentance is past. That's bad. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 20, probably one of the saddest verses uh, in the Bible. This is what it says. The harvest is past. The summer has ended. And we are not saved. Just thinking about that verse, you know, but that's exactly what's happened with, with Eli, Hophni, and, and Phineas. That the time for repentance is over. It's past. They didn't take the opportunity when the opportunity was there. So now the Lord says, judgment has come, period. The judgment will come. This is what I love about Samuel. Verse 15. He had a humble heart. The third thing we see about that faithful, that faithfulness to whom the Lord wants to speak and move. Has a tent of ears. He has an obedient will. And he has a humble heart. Most people after God speaks to him like this, maybe get, may get haughty, run around, do something. Especially a 12 year old. You've seen very many 12 year olds that have been, had, had a, a responsibility heaped upon them. But this 12-year-old says, So Samuel lay down till morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. He just went about business as usual. He got up, and he opened the doors, and he lit the candles, and he did what he's supposed to do. Even though God had given him this, this thing, he went about his work as usual. But Eli knows that God was talking to him the night before, right? I mean, he ran into his room three times. So Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Listen, tell me what God said. Tell me. He wants Samuel to share what he said to him. And so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Here's the difference. Between Samuel and Eli. Eli couldn't tell his sons the things that he needed to tell them as their leader. Because he loved his sons more than he loved the Lord. Samuel told Eli everything God said. Because he loved the Lord more than he loved Eli. You see the very definitive Difference there. Samuel told him everything and hid nothing. He told him it all. He told him it all. Whenever I get an opportunity to bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ, to an unbeliever, if I hold something back, if, if I'm not sharing something, if I don't say what the Word of God clearly says, when God's Word is burning in my bosom and is dying to come out and I'm trying to choke it back, I am saying I love something else more than I love Him. And I won't do that. I spent enough time doing that. 
I'm not going to do it. I'm going to love him. My last, my last breath, I hope. I'm going to love him more. I'm going to want to tell the truth about what God's word says. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So that's, it. that's what Eli says. Well, he's God. But you see a willing submission to, to God's judgment. You know, in the, in the big picture, well, I think Eli's going to be fine. Uh, he, he pays a harsh judgment for the choices he made, but he had a relationship with God and was submitted to him. Eli's boys, well, we'll never see them. They didn't know the Lord. Didn't want to know him. Eli submitted himself to the judgment of God. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. The last thing we see about this, this uh, faithful life, we see ears to hear, we see a, 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 an obedient will, we see a humble heart, and then we see a godly walk. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. That means whatever God told Samuel was going to happen, it happened. It means never in Samuel's life did he say, God said, and it not come to pass. Never in Samuel's life did the Lord give him a word that he had to worry about whether or not it was going to be true. You see, the Lord raised up for himself a mouthpiece. A mouth to reach out to the entire nation of Israel. And that's what Samuel's going to be. He's going to be their last judge until they reject him and say they want a king. And then he will be the anointer of the kings. But he will always be the prophet. The first. The prophet who's going to speak the words of God to the nation. To the kings. To make sure they know what it is that God's saying, what God's doing. For the time, as far as Samuel's concerned, for his time, there will never be a time when a nation will not know the word of God. They'll know it. They may not listen, but he's going to make sure that they know it. And so he has this godly walk. And it says, all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that's as far north to as far south as you can get, they knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet to the Lord. So the first time in the last 400 years that the nation of Israel is being united under one figure. You guys with me? All the judges, they were, they were territorial. They, didn't, they weren't over the entire nation. They were over pieces and parts. But now Samuel, from north to south, everybody knows he's the prophet of God. He's speaking for the Lord. God is, is, is finally talking to his people again. Not only that, it said, Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. In verse 21, the Lord gives a new beginning. There's a new beginning. Hey, the, God is speaking again to the nation. But you know, sometimes when God speaks, it doesn't exactly go like you think it's going <laughs> to. That's why chapter 4 is there. There's quite, a, there's quite a bit of, what would you call it? Shaken up. God's going to do. He's going to do quite a bit of shaking up. But the, the Lord tells us that he shakes things so that we learn to hold on to that which doesn't shake. Which is him. The rock. That we cling to him. And all that other stuff can go and we can count, concentrate and focus on truly what God wants to do in and through us. So this is a new beginning. God's reaching out to his people. He's doing a new thing. It's exciting times. For the Lord says in Jeremiah, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. But don't lose sight. It didn't say easy. Didn't say it wouldn't hurt. Didn't say there wasn't going to be a struggle. He just said, it's good. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you so much for just an opportunity to study your word, to, to open up and allow, God, your word to speak to our hearts. And, 
God, to just realize, to see, to recognize, Lord, your fingerprints in our life. And, and Father, if there's anything in these stories, the, the, the Apostle Paul tells us that, that these stories are given for our admonition. That's for our learning. That we might learn from their mistakes. That we might see where they get off track. That we might recognize where they go south. And we would make the adjustments in our life to keep us on track. God, I pray that you would help us to live every day full throttle, wide open for you. To honor you. To bring glory to you. To love you with our whole heart. Just as you called for the nation of Israel. One rule. One thing, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Lord, help us to respond and love you with our whole heart. To live our lives as an open declaration that we love you. Lord God, as we look, we just desire, we can't wait to see your face. And, and every passing day strengthens that, that longing within us for your glorious appearing, for the day when we will finally see you, Lord. And until that time, I pray that you would find us doing with your name upon our lips every day of our life. And we will give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.